Here's a quick word from our football educational partners over at the Scouting Academy. Listen, we've said it all the time. If you love the analysis and you're passionate about football, then you really need to check out the Scouting Academy. Whether you're a football coach, aspiring writer, or even aspiring football agent, the Scouting Academy is really a perfect place for you to learn and develop your skills as an analyst. With curriculum that spans over 375 years of coaching and personnel experience, the Scouting Academy offers you a 16-week online course that you can tailor and build to meet your needs and your interests. Whether you're learning about wide receivers or defensive linemen, you can make the experience what you want it to be. Listen, I've said it to you on this podcast many times. I've spent my own money, my own time, and time away from my friends and family because I am just this passionate about this game. And the Scouting Academy is the place where I really feel like I've learned the most I've ever learned about the game of football. It's made me a better analyst. It's made me a better person in terms of the coaching I do on the field. I can't say enough great things about it. If you have any questions about the Scouting Academy, please don't hesitate to reach out to Dan Hatman on Twitter or reach out to the Scouting Academy online via email. I'm open to all questions as well. Heck, I'm still even a student there myself. Please don't hesitate to reach out. I really think that once you learn all the tools and gain the knowledge that they have to offer, I really think you're going to be absolutely excited about the game of football again. This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Paul Pertichese, and joining me this evening is Mr. Matt Caraccio. Matt, welcome back. Paul, I am absolutely excited. I cannot wait to get started tonight. I have literally, like we say all the time, we're going to be exploring some of the best analysts out there in the business. And I am just so excited to be able to share the airwaves tonight with somebody who really does provide tremendous, tremendous insight on every position on the football field. So Paul, let's just get started. Yeah, so with us this evening is Ben Fennell from NFL Network from The Athletic Wisconsin. Ben, welcome to the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. It's a pleasure to join you guys. We're right in the thick of draft season. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, absolutely. So Matt and I have been bringing on guests over the last couple of weeks to kind of go through the positions. We gave our thoughts, our full tiers prior to the combine. We'll come back and cycle back and give our updated rankings and tiers before the NFL draft. But we love this time of the year to bring on other people in the industry and get their thoughts. So tonight we're going to be talking about the wide receiver position, one of the most intriguing of the offensive skill positions, very deep and a lot of guys to talk about. So let's just get right into it, Ben, right from the get-go. And obviously this year's class, unlike in the past, it has a lot of what 
people want to call those prototypes, the guys that look the part of what we're looking for as maybe that traditional number one outside wide receiver. You got the big guys, DK Metcalf, Nikhil Harry, Hakeem Butler, Calvin Harmon. Just kind of maybe go through and give your quick thoughts on a couple of those guys. You know, maybe who intrigues you the most, who you may have some question marks about, and just those kind of big four there who are kind of atop a lot of people's draft boards in terms of that stylistic of a player. Yeah, you know, it's a very intriguing draft group. Like you were saying, it's deep, and I think there's talent and value at all stages of the draft, which you don't see every year from all the positions. So this is one of the deeper groups in this draft. And like you're saying, there's some prototype positions, but there's a lot of different unique shapes shapes and sizes and talents and skill sets. And these guys come in all different sizes and abilities. And while there are prototypes, there's a lot of unique players as well. So I think whatever you're looking for in your offense, whether it's an outside numbers, X receiver, whether you want a speed receiver to stretch the defense vertically and maybe even horizontally, or maybe a unique type of matchup, whether you want a big slot receiver or maybe a gadget player to work into the backfield and on some kind of unique offensive schemes. I think whatever you're looking for to add a dynamic weapon to your offense in the NFL, there's somebody for you in this draft. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the one guy right off the bat I want to talk about first, and I don't think he's going to be a guy who's the first or second wide receiver taken. There seems to be a major difference of opinions in Hakeem Butler because you you follow some of the people on draft Twitter, people who are really reputable in the industry, in evaluations, and they have Hakeem Butler one or two or three on their draft boards in terms of the wide receiver position, and they think he could be around one pick. And then there's other guys like Dane Brugler, Lance Zerline, that aren't really that high on Hakeem Butler, and, and they kind of see him more as maybe a third-round pick, maybe not even in their top eight or top ten wide receivers of this class where do you kind of sit on Hakeem Butler and what he offers at the next level so definitely one of the more polarizing uh receivers in this draft like you're saying uh, people have him all over the board up and down the board I think the issue with him is he's a unique player being a power forward type of basketball player receiver you're 6'5 every bit of 225 right off the bat you assume you can't run routes and separate that's not Hakeem Butler. You see a lot of highlights on SportsCenter on Sunday mornings of him high-pointing the ball over smaller defensive backs, and you think he's just a catch-point guy. But that really isn't the case. And when you put on the tape from 2017, when they had Alan Lazard as the outside receiver, he ran a lot of routes over the middle of the field, a lot of tight end-style routes where he really had to be sharp getting in and out of breaks, a lot of the subtle nuances of his releases, his stems, working against linebackers, nickels, safeties, a variety of defenders, not only in short intermediate routes, but down the field as well. I thought last year really showed the full package of his route running ability. So then he kind of go through 2018, again, builds another impressive year, this time as an outside the numbers receiver. And he had 10 plays of 40 plus yards. So you saw the explosive element, the catch point, the yards after catch within the route. A lot of people question if he'd be able to run quickly. He shows up the Indianapolis Combine and runs 4-4-8. So I just think he's checking all the boxes uh, as far as I see him as a prospect. And right now he's sitting there comfortably as wide receiver one on my board. 
Really interesting there. So again, you like you talked about the polarizingness of this player is so fascinating. Sigmund Bloom on Twitter has comped him the Plaxico Burris. I really like that comp. Matt, I want to bring you in here. I know you wrote a full scouting profile on Hakeem Butler for the, the premium notebook, the scouting notebook for us. Where do you sit on Hakeem Butler uh, in that narrative that some people see him as around one guy other people see him as around three guy maybe you're somewhere in the middle or on one of the op- one of the spectrums yeah no i mean listen I, I i take a lot of what ben said and i i have to agree with a lot of what he said i mean i i think the degree to which maybe him and i are seeing the same things may vary a little bit but there's no doubt that this guy's an impact player i mean when you look at what he can bring to the table in terms of making an offense better. It's more than just, as Ben put it, it's more than just being this power forward, you know, basketball type receiver that's going to be able to go up and get it. I mean, there is nuance to his game. There's a lot of variety in what he can do. I see him a little bit more on the kind of beginning to develop, not the higher end of his development curve. And and that's where, maybe where we differ a little bit. But I think that the, the repertoire, the entire range of ability that he presents as a as a wide receiver is really really intriguing. I mean, the biggest thing I'll say about Hakeem uh, Hakeem Butler is that when you look at him as a player as a route runner, I think if we look at the areas of the field that I immediately think he wins on, I I really do think he wins as a deep ball receiver, and and I'll tell you why. I I don't think it's just because he's big and he's fast. I mean, let's we'll get it's not that. It's because of what he does in his vertical stem, the way he has a sensitivity to the actual DB. He knows how to pace it. He knows how to pace and stack the DB to create that separation more than just actually running the route. Yes, there's deception in his stems. Yes, there's the ability to instate or destabilize the defender, but it's how he uses the stacked position to actually pace the DB and then maximize the affordances of his body control in those moments. So he plays even larger than he already is, if that even makes sense. And I and I'm sure Ben might echo the same things. You know, because I think the thing that we get into when we talk about route runners, we talk about separation. Sometimes it's not always advantageous to be able to have the DB in a trail position, not in every route. But when it comes to deep routes, yeah, you want him in the trail position and you want to stack that guy. You want him behind you. So that window is really nice and clear for that quarterback to throw. So I think he's an immediate impact player in a vertical passing scheme. I think he adds value right there. I think Ben will tell you the same thing, but I think he'll also add to it a little bit more of that development that he sees in his intermediary to short routes, which I think he's still developing. But I can't argue with Ben about the fact that there's a lot a lot to love about where that development curve is going to lead. Yeah, I mean, he, like we said, polarizing 100%. It's going to be fascinating to kind of get a feel for what the NFL teams think of this guy. Is he, is he a guy that we see as a surprise late round one pick? Does he? Do we see him go off the board early on day two? Or is he sitting there and, and it hits round three? You know, what, did, what does the NFL think of his drops? I understand that drops are something that, you know, some people put more stock in than other. I think Butler's obviously one of the more fascinating wide receivers in this class, but I think it's filled with them. So Ben, I want to bring you back in here. I mentioned a couple names before DK Metcalf, Nikhil Harry and Calvin Harmon. Most people by now this close to the draft have a good sense in terms of some areas of what these guys do really well in. So I kind of want to phrase you to the question on these three guys as 
their their concerns, the areas of development or weakness. How concerned are you with them? Does it hurt that your eval on them? For DK Metcalf, it's obviously the route running, the route tree. I don't even care so much about what he tested at the combine in terms of the change of direction drills. In terms of that translating to the NFL, do you have some concerns about that route running? For Nikhil Harry, do you have any questions on the field about separation quickness? And then for Calvin Harmon, are you the athletic concerns, the the speed concerns? Are those those are basically, I think, the questions that people have on these guys? How would you kind of maybe answer to answer that for these guys? Is it really impacting what you think of these guys, and maybe how successful they could be at the next level? Yeah, kind of just to connect the full dots coming from Hakeem Butler. I think that's what separates Hakeem Butler and just his nuances as a route runner. On top of his speed, the length, the catch radius, the testing. Now, obviously, I see a A.J. Green style of upside with Hakeem Butler. But I've been down this road before. I've been been let down with James Hardy, 6'6", tall glass of water at Indiana, you know, about seven, eight years ago. I remember Jaleel Scott at a New Mexico State last year that looked very similar. That was a little bit, you know, I thought they had that high upside as well. But Hakeem Butler, I think, is the full package. And why he's wide receiver one over some of those other guys that are big, tall, sexy, fast, like DK Metcalf, Nikhil Harry, Kelvin Harmon. Those guys aren't as nuanced in the route. And you see them make a lot of tough contested catches, a lot of good adjustments to catches. Well, they'll use their size and kind of their frame and their toughness and their strong hands. But they aren't necessarily winning within the route and in the route stem and having the nuances with releases in the full package to get off press coverage. So if your full repertoire and what you're hanging your hat on is contested catches and being a bully wide receiver like Nikhil Harry is and DK Metcalf is to this point in his career, that suddenly becomes much more difficult to accomplish at the next level where cornerbacks are bigger, more physical, better ball skills, where you can't just out-muscle players at the catch point. Do you really have to work on your releases, your full route tree, playing from both sides of the offense. I think as far as right now, I like Nikhil Harry's skill set in his tape more than the other two, just from what he's put on tape, his little nuances with his releases. I think they use him over uh, you know, over the uh, field a little bit more diversely than DK Metcalf, who is strictly a left wide receiver outside the numbers. So I think he has a little bit more of a learning curve as far as getting acclimated to an NFL route tree. But obviously they have the skill set, the size, the speed, waking up in the morning, and that's what the NFL kind of covets. Yeah, absolutely. And Nikhil Harry is a guy who has been generating a lot of conversation that there are some people think that he's going to be an inside-outside player. And some people think that his best spot in the NFL could be inside in the slot, like that big slot guy, similar to like a Juju Smith-Schuster, uh, more so. That, and that would maybe minimize some of the questions about on the field, does he struggle maybe to create separation in his routes and vertically down the field? Obviously, he can win at the catch point use that size and physicality to to his you know to make those catches but like you said that's going to be a little bit more challenging at the NFL level bigger more athletic faster quicker guys are going to make that a little bit harder I know Calvin Harmon I know I'm a fan Matt's a fan I see some Hakeem Nicks when Hakeem Nicks first came out the athletic testing is very similar the back shoulder fades I think he's more nuanced a little bit than a guy uh you know, like DK Metcalf. And I even think he's a little bit more nuanced on the outside in terms of his route running than Nikhil Harry. Matt, I want to bring you in here. 
any quick thoughts on those guys? Are there concerns? Same way I phrased it to Ben. The concerns that people have about these guys, are they concerns that you think should be that are viable and could potentially hinder them being successful NFL players? Or do you think that they're they're those issues are things that they can overcome? And if they're asked to play a, a specific way, role, scheme, that they could still be successful at the next level? No, I, I think a lot of what Ben said, I think, resonated with most of the evaluations that you guys just brought up. And I think that somebody that, you know, in particular that I'll start with, I mean, with Kelvin Harmon, I think we've talked a lot about him in the past. And, you know, I, I'm not so ready to kind of divorce myself from him. I mean, he currently sits as my number one wide receiver. And, you know, that's actually something that he supplanted A.J. Brown uh, from me. And and the reason why is for me um, – and again, I, you know, where he differs than the guys we just talked about is, listen, I don't think Kelvin Harmon's development curve is significantly higher than where it currently is. I think we're talking about a guy who probably has reached that peak performance, but that doesn't mean that he isn't an immediate starter. So that's where I would go with that. I mean, so I know that sounds kind of silly. I mean, we were talking about guys who we can, we're talking about as being potential starters or potential number one guys. I think Kelvin Harmon in this class is an immediate starter. I think AJ Brown is an immediate starter. And I mean, in two wide receiver sets, these guys are going to immediately find a home. And I think that in the NFL, yes, top three is a starter. I think these guys already possess the full range of abilities and the full capabilities to start immediately in the NFL. Now, AJ Brown's going to get the argument that he's been so kind of positioned within the slot. How is he going to manage outside the numbers? And that's a relevant point. And if you want me to be truly, truly true to myself, I'm going to tell you, you're right. There is a little bit of a hurdle there. The, the, the same types of problems that he'll face outside the numbers are not going to be the same as that he'll face in the slot. When we talk about Kelvin Harmon though, however, I do see a guy who's faced a lot of different problems. He has been outside the numbers and that's where I think he's going to be. He's going to be a flanker. I think he's going to be a guy off the line of scrimmage in a most, in most wide receiver sets. I don't think he's your true X although that's what people are going to want to draft him to be. I think he can do that at times, but I do think that he's going to be your off-the-line flanker. He's going to do all the dirty work kind of on the slant routes over the middle. He's going to do all that dirty work cleaning up in terms of blocking and creating opportunities for your running backs. He's going to be a very dominant possession-type receiver that's going to live on the outside of of actual you know formations and, and schemes. So... Does that mean Hakeem Butler and DK Metcalf can't supplant these guys? No, of course they can. Their development curve, I still think, hasn't been fully realized. So for that reason, I, I really tried to position myself, Paul, and say to myself, this year, I want to look at skill as it is right now, an eye on the future, but where are we right now? And do we know for sure whether or not these guys are going to take the next step? And and we don't. We don't know if they are because everything's about to change for them. So I think that like Nikhil Harry, for example, I think he's a rock solid side, you know, wide receiver. I do think that there's concerns for me, at least the way I see it. Um, I, I don't see a guy who runs a very, very diverse, diverse route tree. And I think after the catch, I don't think he's exceptional. I think he's very good. I think he's solid. I think he has the ability to make get yards, but I think he wins in a very particular bandwidth of, uh, a a particular bandwidth of solutions. He's a guy who wants to win physically. He can make you miss, but I find in really tight spaces, he's taking advantage of that size and trying to play bully ball to get that first down. And, And that's, and that's great. But to Ben's point, 
things are going to get bigger and faster and stronger at the next level. And I'm not necessarily sure we have the toolbox right now to really kind of handle the range of problems that they're going to see after the catch. I don't, I don't think Nikhil Harry has that yet. Do I think Kelvin Harmon has that? No, I don't. But I do think that he has shown, again, in terms of his overall wide receiving abilities, in terms of his route running, in terms of his nuances in his stems, I have seen more from him in that place. So I think to, to everybody's point in this discussion, I think you're splitting hairs after you get in that top five. I think there's you can guys can toss this in a box and tell me your wide receiver one is DK Metcalf, and I'll say, oh, okay. Um, you might say to me that your wide receiver one is A.J. Brown, and I'll say, oh, okay, that's fine. And then you might say to me your wide receiver one is Hakeem Butler. And now while this is where people differ than me, I think we're at, I still think we're still developing. Others may see that as being more developed and polished already. That's fine too. I do think though, that this particular group of wide receivers that we just mentioned do fit the prototypes for many teams to get excited about in the future. I do really see that from all of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the ceiling probably is a great term to use for DK Metcalf and Hakeem Butler. I do think most people, even people who don't maybe have them at the top of their wide receiver board, I think people would be, I think most would agree that they probably are, have two of the highest ceilings of anybody, you know, in this draft class in terms of if they hit completely, Metcalf and Butler probably are the guys that could have that highest ceiling. Ben, any final thoughts or questions for Matt or I on the few names here that we were just talking about? Yeah, I loved all your points on Kelvin Harmon. That was somebody I wrote down watching Jair Alexander last year at uh, uh, the University of Louisville. He gave Jair tons of problems. But I just wanted to know what your thoughts were. My comparison for Kelvin Harmon was actually Cortland Sutton from SMU coming out of last year's class. Went 40th overall to the Denver Broncos. Very similar height, weight, speed type of receiver. 6'3", just under 220, running a 4.54. I saw Kelvin Harmon ran a 4.6, so obviously not the long speed type of receiver, but a guy that adjusted very well to the ball, great on back shoulders, could high point the ball. Where do you see Kelvin Harmon on the spectrum of a Corlin Sutton comparing him to last year's prospect? Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent, excellent question, and I think that Cortland Sutton is a is a very apt kind of way to frame where Kelvin Harmon is in terms of the landscape of wide receivers. I think that's a very apt way to kind of go about it. I, I do think, at least going back to Cortland Sutton, I do think that Cortland Sutton wasn't nearly as refined. Um, I do think there's more to Kelvin Harmon in terms of his overall route deception, in terms of what he did. You know, he showed good arm swing. He showed, he sold his vertical routes. He had good angles of release to attack the leverages of DBs. He used his visual gaze and shoulders to deceive DBs throughout his actual vertical stems. I saw a lot more in terms of the subtleties of how to use the space afforded to him in his vertical stem to be more deceptive. Whereas I didn't see that necessarily from Cortland Sutton. I thought I saw more from Cortland Sutton, if I'm, re- if I'm recalling this correctly, a little bit more of a guy who was winning with athleticism. He kind of had a couple of really good solutions to the problems. He would kind of lean on certain types of fakes, certain types of mid-stem jabs, mid-stem takes, a little kind of subtleties and nuances. He kind of leaned on the same solution, it seemed, more than Kelvin Harmon. I saw a little bit more um a little bit more of a lock and key situation where Kelvin Harmon was able to pull the right key for the right lock at the right time a little bit better 
allowing for a little bit more enhanced play speed. So I think when you talk about Cortland Sutton, I would actually say comparing to Cortland Sutton, I'd probably put Cortland Sutton's athletic prowess. Obviously, I think a little bit better than Kelvin Harmon. I would at least kind of put it that there to start with. But I also think his overall um, speed on the field, there were glimpses of Cortland Sutton being able to eclipse Kelvin Harmon in terms of his overall athleticism. I do believe that Kelvin Harmon is towards, like I said, the top of his development curve. So I don't want to portray this as Kelvin Harmon is going to be the guy we'll look back at 10 years and say he was the best receiver in this class. It may not be, but I do think he's one of the most responsible picks right now for a team that's looking to fill out their flanker position or fill out their wide receiver core. I do think he can fit in a variety of schemes. I do think he'll he'll give you what you need at the next level to immediately compete. So it's that, again, like he, like we've been talking about, I think it's that, are we looking for potential? Are we looking for skill? How are we going to allot that to our number one? What is the healthy balance? These are all questions I've been grappling with all year. And as my tweets and things that you've seen before, I'm really trying to get to the heart of that. I'm really trying to ask myself, what can we really lock on to as evaluators and say, that's it. There's development right there. I see it. There's where it's going to happen. What do we define that to be? So Ben, I'm actually going to throw this back at you because as we transition maybe these next group of receivers and begin to look maybe a little further down this list and, and see the next couple of guys, we really start getting into that, that world of, I mean, pick them. You want to talk about slot receivers. You want to talk about, you know, guys that are going to be vertical threats. The, you know, the, the Hollywood Browns, the, the Andy Isabella's are on the rise. As we look at guys like, I mean, a favorite of mine, Terry McLaurin, you know, we look at guys like that, so I'm just curious, as we begin to unpack outside of that group, as we get past Nikhil Harry, as we get past the A.J. Browns of the world, where does your sights immediately begin to take you? Who are the next group of receivers in your mind that NFL organizations need to take seriously this year? Yeah, so I have that next tier after my first round receivers of Harry, Metcalf, A.J. Brown, I think Debo Samuels in the conversation at the end of round one. And then I have some guys like Terry McLaurin, Andy Isabella, J.J. Arcega-Whiteside, who's obviously a, a great high-point red zone type of receiver from Stanford. And then I have this next tier, which are high-side traits. So they may be a little bit raw at receiver, but there's something to like about these guys. And I'm talking Riley Ridley's of the world and their route running, or Nicole Hardman and his explosive element from the slot or as a returner, or Emmanuel Hall and his vertical element outside the numbers to take the top off the defense. There's a lot of interesting size guys, and there's a lot of interesting speed. But there's some rawness in their tape, whether that's Paris Campbell and his inability to run a normal route tree and win down the field in an intermediate and deep routes, or someone like Miles Boykin, who 6'3", 220, running a 4'4". Those type of guys aren't walking around in the streets every day. So very intriguing heights, weights, speeds, but there's a little bit left uh, to be desired on the tape. So... The next tier after that are some guys that have some limitations, but their tape may be excellent. So that's the David Sills of the world or Stanley Morgan at Nebraska or Anthony Johnson. Those type of guys, I think, are in that next tier uh, that may have a limitation. But you see some production and you see the tape and you see them winning, but they may just not have that length or that speed on paper that you would really want to uh, fit your measurables and your threshold for your receivers. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you did a great job there kind of running the gamut in terms of like the groups that you kind of have these guys ranked in in terms of, you know, what they bring, what they offer, what they specialize in. So I'm going to kind of cycle back to a couple names and, and dig in a little bit deeper. We talked about some of these bigger guys. We kind of covered them. You mentioned two names in there, and I kind of had them listed as the more of the possession style guys. And the two, the best ones, I think, in the class are A.J. Brown and Riley Ridley. And A.J. Brown, I think, is a guy who most people seem to kind of have a, a good sense of who he is. I think most people seem to be in agreement that he is better off as a big slot guy, but Maybe he had more capabilities to play on the outside. Maybe we saw some of that untapped athleticism at the combine. So I'm interested to hear your take on whether you think he could be more of an inside-outside guy or he's best inside. And then second, Riley Ridley. He seems to be another polarizing guy that some people think top 100 pick, round two, round three guy. And then other people said if he had a different last name and he didn't play at Georgia, we're talking about a UDFA. I know Matt and I are fans of Riley Ridley. But the people who are really into production, you know, market share, things like that, or the people who are really big into the combine, the metrics, you know, obviously they're not fans of Riley Ridley. So a little bit there about A.J. Brown and where you think he best fits positionally, and then Riley Ridley and where you kind of stand on those concerns about athletic, lack of maybe athleticism and, you know, production, you know, metric numbers compared to what you see on film. Yeah, just starting with A.J. Brown, this is a very unique body type. Being just over six foot and 226, that's really the mold of a running back. But being able to run 4.49 in that body type, that's a very, very unique kind of frame to play receiver in. It's very much like a Andre Johnson, who's a little bit squattier, but has that explosive element and has the play strength. Or even further back to a Sterling Sharp, who is just over 6'1" but absolutely rocked up and can lift weights with some of the offensive linemen. So that's the type of A.J. Brown that I see and that he's a very unique player with great play strength that I think you could really survive playing inside or outside. I know the slot receiver is subtly getting away from the twitchy Wes Welker, Brandon Stokely's of the world, and you want a little bit more of a a power strength player in there. Now, A.J. Brown may not have the height and the length, but he has the route running acclimate. He has the strength to get off press coverage. The 24 plays of 20-plus yards last year in Ole Miss's offense was definitely an eye-opener in winning in a variety of ways, whether that's yards after catch, within the route, vertical elements, double moves. I thought he gave you the full package. Riley Ridley is a very interesting player. I'm just going to call up his notes here for a second. He didn't test very well, which was kind of shocking, being over 6'1", 199 pounds, and running 4.58. That's really not the speed people expected. I think they expected much more of a mold of his brother Calvin and being a 4-4 style player, I thought he was a much faster player on tape than he tested in a straight line or just being a linear athlete. I thought he was quick. I thought he was fast. I thought he was very sudden off the line of scrimmage, in and out of breaks. He's really aggressive, attacking the ball in the air. He's a route-running technician. I saw flashes of a Keenan Allen style of player. I think he might have a Keenan Allen style of arc to his draft process, who Keenan Allen had some really good tape. But he didn't test very well, and I think his draft stock kind of took a hit uh, when it came draft day. Yeah, and you know what, Ben? I'm I'm just going to chime in here because 
I, I think you said a lot of really cool things in it, and it kind of really is – it's a philosophical question I'm kind of grappling with. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because I think it really ties into this discussion a little bit when it comes to the wide receiver class. I think in general, as evaluators, we've kind of come to this realization of the idea that we're willing to start grouping players. Like we might as well start doing it because they're going to get grouped at the next level outside, inside, X, Z, slot, uh, interchangeable, versatile. But I want to throw this out to you. And it's something I've been ruminating on, I've been thinking about. And I wonder, in the same way that we talk about offensive guards not necessarily being interchangeable with offensive tackles, why is it that we perceive that the same problems you're going to face on the outside, you're going to face on the inside? In other words, by moving from outside the numbers into the slot, we're so cavalier, it seems, at the wide receiver position. I'm guilty of this myself. It just makes me wonder, am I being too cavalier about, you know, hey, listen, he could play outside the numbers. He can also move into the slot. I mean, it is a different landscape of problems. Just just traffic alone, having to navigate linebackers, having to navigate pass rushers, having multiple goes, multiple different ways of a go. You might have more option routes that you have to run. But yet, but yet we're so interchangeable with players when it comes to the wide receiver position. And I and I think there's validity to that. But I wonder, are we being too cavalier with that kind of discussion? What do you think about that, Ben? What do you do you think we're being a little cavalier with that? Or do you think the interchangeable nature of the slot position and outside the numbers is as is as seamless as we're making it to be? Yeah, I think there there is a cavalier element to it. And I think it's a little bit of a uh, a bit of a catch-all, I think, when we're evaluating these guys and not really wanting to give them a definitive role or position at the next level and kind of putting your name to a, uh, a skill set or a role at the next level. But obviously, being a slot receiver, your football IQ, your intelligence, in the NFL, it's all route conversions. It's all sight adjustments. It's a lot of alerts. You're li- literally the extension of the quarterback being a slot receiver. You have to be able to identify coverages, man zone, blitzers, indicators, just as well as the quarterback. And, you know, I look at some cases like, Tavon Austin coming out of University of West Virginia several years ago, dynamic athlete that they ran down the field out in Morgantown, and then he goes to the St. Louis Rams, and he's an outside-the-numbers receiver at 5'10", 200 pounds. And it's a small target, and he just wasn't a player that could win and show himself against these six-foot cornerbacks in the NFL. So I think there's a lot of, when you're projecting to the NFL, you really have to consider a lot of things. You can't just look at their college tape and say, I can plug them in that position in the NFL. It's a different game. There's different assignments. There's different roles. Each position has a different IQ and intelligence coming with it, which that's kind of the toughest part of the process for us to figure out of these players. We we don't really know them personally. We don't know their football intelligence, how sharp they are, their coachability, things like that, that even some NFL teams don't know until you get your hands on them. And then you realize in the summer after that second week, like, hey, we have a moron here, and we can't play him anywhere because he doesn't know the playbook. Or, hey, we got a really unique player. We can play all over this offense. I think there's success stories and failures every year in camp, and that's kind of the uh, buyer beware with the draft process. Yeah, absolutely there. And on with that 
I'm going to bring up two names here that I think this kind of conversation kind of goes with because I think they're two guys who maybe could play inside or outside, or at least, you know, the discussion is that they can do both. And that's Marquise Brown and Debo Samuel. So Marquise Brown, I'm interested to hear your take, Ben. Some people look at Marquise Brown and think Deshaun Jackson outside, even at his size and frame outside vertical right wide receiver in that Deshaun Jackson mold. Other people, I think, look at him and think maybe he's got a little bit more versatility, maybe a T.Y. Hilton best position, maybe is the slot, but be that vertical slot option. And then Debo Samuel, I think he's a more refined uh, DJ Moore from last year who does have that versatility to play inside, play outside, create and manufacture touches with him. Do you see that versatility for, for Debo Samuel transitioning to the NFL level? And I'd love to know if you kind of see stylistically that comp to DJ Moore and then Marquise Brown, outside or inside? Yeah, just piggybacking the Debo Samuel. I'm a huge fan of Debo Samuel. I absolutely love this guy. I think this is what every NFL offense is looking for in that mold of a Randall Cobb, Percy Harvin, not as electric as a Tyreek Hill, but who are we kidding? You're trying to use him in the same way and being a vertical threat, a quick game threat, someone to stretch defenses horizontally in jet sweeps, bubble action, yards after catch. I mean, I did a couple games in person at Debo Samuel. This is a senior receiver off a broken fibula, and he's running punt gutter. And he's winning in releases and jumping on muff punts. And this is just a guy you want on your football team. And watching him in warm-ups and seeing him you know, uh, up close, this guy is a running back body, has a huge bubble butt, huge core, Big abs that are bulging. This is a guy you just want on your football team, in your locker room, and to get him the ball any way you can. When I look at a Marquise Brown, obviously he has the electric speed in that air raid offense uh, down in Oklahoma. But just being around 170 pounds, this is Deshaun Jackson. This is John Brown. And if you just stick him outside the numbers, like I was just talking about Tavon Austin, I think you're going to be sorely disappointed. This is a guy you have to play in the slot. You have to put him in stack formations, in bunches tight splits, get them free releases, free access. And that's what they've done for Deshaun Jackson his entire career. I can maybe find a handful of plays of Deshaun Jackson's career winning a press release from an outside alignment against a corner. They just don't do that. Don't put a 175-pound receiver in a position to have to beat press coverage outside the numbers. I don't think you're doing him a service uh, by putting him in that position. You really have to consider where you're lining them up, giving them free access, and allowing them to get the top speed instantly because that type of speed obviously doesn't grow on trees and can stretch a uh, defense all day long. Matt, any thoughts here on uh, these guys or any other wide receivers you want to bring up for Ben? Yeah, I actually, I'm going to ask you, Ben, if you don't mind to kind of circle back and, and kind of handle uh, one player that you mentioned earlier, as well as a couple of risers, people that have been rising up draft boards, rising up the ranks in terms of media accolades, as well as just people finally getting a chance to watch their film. And that would be number one, looking back at Stanley Morgan, you can give me a little bit of a feel on what your thoughts were on him, uh, as well as Emmanuel Hall, Terry McLaurin, and Paris Campbell, because especially the last three that I mentioned, and and I don't know how Stanley Morgan keeps flying under the radar. Paul and I talk about this all the time, but other than Stanley Morgan, the other three that I mentioned too seem to be getting and garnering a tremendous, a tremendous amount of attention as a result of what they did. I mean, truth be told, Hall was a person that we were talking about last this past summer 
as being a guy who we knew was going to really intrigue people because there's few with his athletic capabilities for sure. So can you give us kind of the skinny on where you see these gentlemen kind of falling in at the next level? Any guys in that group that kind of stand out to you as being guys that you would invest in if you were, if you were making that choice comes draft day? Yeah, and I'll kind of uh, take your list backwards here. Let's start with the Ohio State guys. That Their stocks have been absolutely soaring through the roof since the postseason events like the Senior Bowl and the Combine. Both Paris Campbell and Terry McLaurin's stocks have soared with the way they've tested and shown at some of the postseason events. But starting with Paris Campbell, very interesting player. This is a track star playing receiver. And it's very interesting for people to know. Everyone sees, oh, 4-3-1, 40-inch vertical. Great. We're going to take the top off defenses. He's a vertical threat. He really wasn't. He actually only caught two passes his entire career with 20 air yards on it. So that's 20 yards down the field passes. Two his entire career. A guy that ran 4-3-1. I tweeted that the other day, and a lot of people said, What's Ohio State doing? Why would they do that if they have a 4-3-1 receiver? Let me ask you a question. Do you think Paris Campbell was beating Marshawn Lattimore in practice? Do you think he was beating Denzel Ward or Gary on Connolly or any of these guys playing corner for Ohio State? Absolutely not. So Ohio State said, you know what? We have a 4-3-1 receiver that can't win down the field. What can we do? Let's get him the ball any way we can. We'll hand it to him. We'll give him jet sweeps. We'll give him bubbles. We'll run him on little shallow drags for catch and run opportunities. His average depth of target was 4.5 yards. When you look at Emmanuel Hall, it was 19.6 yards. Completely different players and how they were used in their offense, although on paper they're very similar with their heights, their weights, their speed, their explosive elements. So I think a lot of people see that on paper with Paris Campbell, but that really wasn't his game. So I think there's a bit of fire beware. My comp for Paris Campbell all along has been Terrence Mathis. Uh, who had a little bit of a late development in the NFL in the 90s, kind of started as a return specialist until he found his way as a receiver. And I think that's going to be a similar arc to Paris Campbell in kind of still finding his way as a route runner. Terry McLaurin's, I think, a little bit different. He's much more of a, probably one of the more well-rounded receivers in this entire class. Just over six foot, 205, but running the 4-3-5 and just being able to win underneath in quick game, winning down the field, only 14 receivers since 2000 have weighed 205 and ran sub 435. DK Metcalf, Paris Campbell, and Terry McLaurin are in this draft, three of the 14 since 2000. So he's in a very unique group uh, as far as speed. Former Indiana Mr. Football, highly touted recruit, being a four star. Great effort in blocking, great effort on special teams as a gunner and a returner, great in the red zone. I just think he's a guy in that distribution offense at Ohio State. Nobody really dominated the production share. So I don't love that stat when people say, oh, well, he only had 30 or 40% of the production share. It's a distribution offense. They spread the ball around. J.K. Dobbins gets it one week. Mike Weber gets it another week. Johnny Dixon one week. Then Paris Campbell. Oh, K.J. Hill, Benjamin Victor. It's Ohio State. You got animals and athletes all over the place. Everybody deserves that ball. Uh, so I think the whole production share with him is a bit of a, uh, I think, overrated aspect. Uh, I just called my notes here on Stanley Morgan. Very interesting receiver. I know he was highly recruited and went to Nebraska and was kind of wondering what would his career be like if he had gone to uh, some of the more higher-touted schools that took a look at him. Uh, if you just bear with me for a second as I call up his notes. I just moved him up as I really liked him. Yeah, he was a team captain, the offensive MVP. He was a high school teammate with the Fournettes. 
uh, Leonard Fournette and his younger brother, Lennard. Uh, very prominent high school that Tyron Matthew went to, Trey Turner, Ben Jarvis, Green Ellis. 16.2 yards of catch in 2017, so we could win down the field. Had all sorts of acrobatic catches, one-handed catches, great adjustments inside, outside. He reminds me of a Robert Woods-style player in that he doesn't wow you in any area, didn't test great, doesn't have great size, but he's just a, a great receiver. He's got good hands. He's a quarterback's best friend. He's a guy that can get himself open. He's someone that I could see that maybe won't have huge numbers at the NFL level, but that's someone that's going to compete for those third down conversions and those third down receptions for a team, just being that third or fourth receiver on an offense. And then that last guy, Emmanuel Hall at the University of Missouri, pretty much Drew Locke's best friend that uh, allows him to air out that howitzer. Close to 20 yards of reception at Missouri. Very different receiver than he uh, was coming into the university. Much rawer of a prospect, really refined his route running, his releases, knowing how to stack cornerbacks, knowing how to track the ball. I think he's really improved since he arrived at the University of Missouri. Yeah, I mean, I love some of the points you brought up there. You know, the McLaurin and Paris Campbell discussion is fascinating. I think it's within the last week, you know, prominent you know, people out there in the industry are saying that these guys, uh, they're hearing round one whispers. I think it was Adam Schefter today with Paris Campbell. Uh, I believe it was yesterday or the day before. It was Mel Kuyper, who has a lot of connections and hears a lot of stuff on Terry McLaurin. So whether that ends up happening or not, they're getting pretty good intel that these guys are at least maybe going higher than what many people might have thought. If people thought, you know, Paris Campbell was a late second or third round pick or Terry McLaurin was on that round three, round four border. If they're getting some buzz like this as potential late round one guys, I think it's obviously, you know, they're getting that from somewhere that makes me think they're probably in consideration at least to be top 45 picks, you know, at least if they don't, sneak into that back end of round one, they're probably going to be off the board in the first 15 or 20 picks in round two, which I think is really fascinating, especially in this draft class, because I think that would mean they're going ahead of some very reputable guys that we've been talking about tonight, potentially guys like Calvin Harmon or Debo Samuel, you know, because we know it's going to be a heavily dominated defensive draft in round one. So I think that's really fascinating. A couple other guys I want to bring. We won't keep you too much longer. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the slot guys. I think there's a, a three guys who I'll just group them together because I think that's going to be their home at the next level, but they're all a little bit different in what they bring to the table, and that's Greg Dorch out of Wake Forest, Penny Hart, uh, and Hunter Renfro out of Clemson. We we saw Dorch and Renfro at the Senior Bowl. We didn't see... Uh, I'm sorry, we saw them at the Combine. We didn't see Penny Hart at the Combine. Thoughts on those guys? You know, we saw Penny Hart was really impressive at the Senior Bowl. Uh, what do you think about those three? So, Greg Dorich, uh, he's been my one of my players in this draft class that I've just been angry at watching. And it, I get one of these players every year. He's a redshirt sophomore, so he came out early. And I just felt like he wasn't ready. And those guys always just make me a little bit sick to my stomach when I see a guy who only has two years of experience. He's a redshirt sophomore. Incredible athlete. Virginia 5A Player of the Year, which Virginia High School Football is one of the more underrated states in the country as far as pumping out prospects. But he had a really good year at Wake Forest, 89 catches, 1,000 yards. But he's a two-year player, and he came off a very serious injury in 2017, actually puncturing his small intestine 
in kind of a freak accident. But being a slot receiver, being a really athletic player, he's twitchy, he's dynamic. He lets the ball into his chest too often. He lets it get into his frame. He doesn't pluck the ball away. Two bad traits for a slot receiver. So on top of the letting into your chest, only being a redshirt sophomore. My comp has been Joe Adams from University of Arkansas a couple years ago, also an Eddie Royal, maybe that kind of upside player with an explosive element to be in the slot. But I was just really disappointed at his decision to come out at this point in the process. Obviously, I don't know him personally or what he's going through or what his family situation's like. So there's always a little bit of a unknown when you get to players like that. Um, but I was just a little disappointed when I see a player with minimal production, average tape, and it's like, ah, I wish you kind of hung out in school just a little bit longer. But Penny, Penny Hart was obviously one of the bigger combine snubs of the year. Absolutely lit up the senior bowl. Explosive, explosive receiver. A lot of people have been comparing to a John Brown or maybe a Taylor Gabriel uh, with the Chicago Bears now, previously the Atlanta Falcons and the uh, – or is he before that, Cincinnati Bengals or Cleveland Browns, but it's a guy who's very twitchy, can really set up double moves extremely well, can win within the route, can go track the ball down the field. He has explosive short speed, but also has the long speed as well. I know he didn't test very well at his pro day the other day, but I think it's someone that plays faster on tape. I'm really trusting the tape and his play speed uh, and what I saw on, on the film. And any quick thoughts on Hunter Renfro? Hunter Renfro, you know, obviously he's been at University of Clemson for about 10 years now. He's always giving me that kind of Wayne Corbett vibe that, you know, he's that QB's best friend. Uh, he was just back. on – he was there for 10 years because he liked it there, Ben. <laughs> he just liked it there. He was going for his master's degree, okay? Doctorate. Maybe, maybe his doctorate. Hey, they have a great campus environment there. I can't say I blame them. They have some beautiful azaleas down there on campus. The landscaping's lovely. Uh, but obviously that quarterback's best friend – Great hands despite the size. Obviously knows how to win within the route despite his athletic limitations and his test scores. I don't really care about anything he did at the combine. This guy has tons of tape, made tons of clutch catches throughout his career, whether it was national championship games against the likes of Mika Fitzpatrick on the national stage. You know, so he's just somebody like a winker bet that's that blue-collar guy that I think is going to show up to work, play really hard. I don't know if he's a draftable player, but – I'll tell you what, if he gets into camp somewhere, he's going to ruffle the back end of somebody's receiver room. And he's destined, whether it's his first team, his second team, or his third team, he's destined to be a New England Patriot at some point. I mean, and you even said, I think he probably does get drafted somewhere on day three. But even if he doesn't, I mean, look at Adam Humphreys right now. You know, kind of came out of nowhere, kind of paid his dues there, worked his way into basically the starting lineup for all intents and purposes, and then just signed like a four-year, $36 million contract. So, you know, we, we... are in a time now that the slot receiver is so viable in so many offenses that I think a guy like Renfro is going to get that opportunity. Two last guys that I know I want to ask you about, and then I'll throw it to Matt to see if he has any other guys he wants to pick your brain on. Macaulay Hardman and Andy Isabella. You mentioned Hardman a while ago. These guys at times are getting pigeonholed into being, I think, slot players, and I don't really think that does them their due justice. You know, the guys we were just talking about, Dorch, Renfro, and I even think Penny Hart, I think their best position is is more of that prototypical slot guy. But Isabella, you know, has that rare speed that, you know, he can get vertical down the field. He can win on the outside. We saw him do it against some high-level competition. And then Macaulay Hardman, I mean, his burst and acceleration might be the best in the entire class. So 
I just kind of want to hear your thoughts on these two guys, how they're different than, you know, the, the prototypical slot guy. And do you, do you see them as being different and having much more versatility and variety to their game than just, you know, put them in the slot to, you know, keep the chains moving? So Nicole Hardman, I think, does fit the mold of being that slot receiver. I see a lot of similar traits to Philip Dorsett coming out of the University of Miami. He was a first-round pick to the Indianapolis Colts, has since been traded to the New England Patriots. But I see a similar trait to him there, and I think he's a slot receiver that wins on a lot of those big box fades and the double moves. He does some kick-returning stuff, a couple gadget things on jet sweeps and end-arounds and just to get the ball in his hands. But you see the instant speed and being a 4-3-3 guy, that's a guy you kind of want to play him off the ball just a little bit tighter to the formation and give him a lot of room to run to the sideline and down the field. In the national championship game in 2018, I mean, Tony Brown was one of the more athletic players in last year's draft, I think running right around a 4-3-0. He absolutely smoked Tony Brown on a big box fade in the championship game last year. So you can see the play speed. I think he fits that slot role and kind of that gadget role, like we were saying before, like a uh, Debo Samuel and that Percy Harvin, Randall Cobb type of mold that everybody's looking for that jack-of-all-trades uh, type of running back-receiver hybrid. Now, Andy Isabella is interesting because while he may look like that typical slot receiver being 5'8", 180 pounds and white, you think he's that Julian Edelman, but he really wasn't a slot receiver at UMass. He won down the field outside the numbers that I don't think is going to be his role at the NFL. He's just too small. I'm not throwing verticals. 15 yards down the field to a 5'8 receiver and giving my quarterback a very small radius to drop that in. So my comps have been, I like a Kevin Curtis, if you remember him with the uh, St. Louis Rams and the Philadelphia Eagles about 10 years ago, Trent Taylor at a La Tech, Dane Seisenbacher at Ohio State that came out a couple years ago. I think it's going to be really dependent on what team he goes to and what scheme and how they use him. Like all these players, you know, in the draft, I think the scheme and the usage can really make or break your career, but Andy Isabella obviously has a, is incredible production, nearly 3,000 yards the past two years. And obviously you want to put on any games against SEC talent. He's played Florida, Tennessee, South Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi State, where he looked like the fastest player on the field in those games as well. So I'm not going to be the one to count this guy out. I'm just not sure really what to do with him at the NFL level. He looks like that traditional slot receiver. Yeah, I mean, I think you brought up great points there. I love the Macaulay Hardman because I agree with you that while the slot is his best home, he's he's a little different of a slot guy because he offers that vertical big playability and then also at the same time could do some of that gadget stuff, get him the ball in space as well. So I think he's intriguing. And then Iz- Isabella, like you said, he has the size and the stature and looks like the prototypical slot wide receiver, but he's got the athleticism and speed and, and, and some you know production on film against upper-level competition to win on the outside. So he's a very intriguing case study as well. Matt, any final guys you want to ask Ben about before we wrap it up? Yeah, Ben, I'm going to, I'm going to throw out just a a couple of last guys for you just to to kind of get your feel for them. Um, A guy who I was very surprised at when watching, and I don't want to couch this discussion with that to, to make you feel that I'm biased in any way. Um, But the player that I'm thinking of is Antoine Wesley from Texas tech. Um, I'd love to know your thoughts on him as well as a, a player that I just can't quit uh, for some reason. I just can't let him go. Um, it, we have a special relationship, I assume. Anthony Johnson from Buffalo. Um, I, I just cannot let Anthony Johnson go. Every time I, every time I want to say it's, oh, we're, we're not polished enough, we're not ready enough, he just goes ahead and he'll just make plays sometimes on film where you're like, man, 
the, is, the juice seems worth the squeeze there, man. I think if we can put in some wrench time and development time, I, I want to really see where he can really develop into. What, do you, what are your thoughts on those two guys? Because I think that those two players do offer some, really speak to the depth of this class. So uh, Antoine Wesley is in my basketball player conversation. He's in the tall, lean, lanky uh, mold. Being 6'4 and two, just over 200 pounds, that's a tall player with not a lot of butt to him. So that's very much like an NBA player. You ever look at the heights and weights of NBA players, it's very fascinating if you study football players because their proportions and where their weight is distributed is completely different. These guys are 6'4", 6'5", 6'6", but they weigh 190 pounds. So it's very interesting the way they're built when we're thinking of 6'6 defensive ends being 280 pounds, completely different sports and body types. But when you look at Antoine Wesley, this is a basketball player playing football. And you see it on the tape. You see his very loose hips. He's a very agile athlete. He's a long strider, but he can step through tackles and he's got some wiggle after the catch. The second he gets that ball in his hands, you can almost see him working in some crossover moves and some light-footed kind of – agility after the catch there but he's a bit of a buyer beware he's only a one-year player last year he had 10 catches this past year he had 88 catches for 1400 yards in that texas tech wide open offense where they're throwing the ball around so i wish he kind of hung for a senior year some of the comps i've had written down chris henry from the uh, cincinnati Bengals a couple years ago marcel aitman coming out of oklahoma state last year felton davis coming out of michigan state this year andre holmes some of those taller longer lankier players But the issue I have with them, so many times they get knocked off the routes and the stems or maybe even jammed completely out of bounds just because they don't have that play strength or that, for lack of better words, that butt to kind of hang with some of these physical cornerbacks that want to jam them on the line of scrimmage. But he's very good in contested situations. He's that long-limb athlete. I thought he tested pretty well. He didn't run the 40 at the combine, but obviously jumped out of the building with a 37-inch vertical being 6'4". Um, so a very intriguing player. I think he's a, he'll be a day three guy that a team will want to take a flyer on. I thought he showed some good uh, abilities at the Senior Bowl as well that uh, you know can translate to the next level. Obviously, those one-year productions are always a little concerning, in my opinion. Uh, so let me pull up my Anthony Johnson notes here. Yeah, so Anthony Johnson, he obviously put up some good numbers with Tyree Jackson, a big-arm quarterback, the past few years. Kind of interesting. You don't see too many players go to two different JUCOs. So it takes a little bit of vetting in the off the field to figure out what was going on before he got to Buffalo, uh, just figuring out is he obviously a, a problem guy, getting along with coaches and things like that. Just a bit of a red flag anytime you see that. But it's a player, another guy that didn't run at the combine, but tested kind of average in some of the jumps and the three cone. But when you put on the tape, I thought he just looked like a faster player on tape. He was an aggressive receiver. He's a guy that gave highly touted corners like Rocky Sin trouble. Uh, from the University of Temple. So he's somebody I have in early day three right now that I don't think his test scores are doing him any favors, but when you put the tape back on, he's someone that was productive and won in all different areas of the field. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think you you bring up great points there about both of those guys. I think they're intriguing guys. I think in this deep wide receiver class, we're probably looking at, you know, round four, round five for those guys. I think that's probably the the spot you see those guys go off the board. Uh, And it's going to be interesting. You know, I think this class, going back to what you said literally probably 45 minutes ago, it really does have a little bit of everything that you're looking for. So a team's board could be very, very different than what a type of wide receiver board that you might see out there, you know, on 
NFL.com or ESPN.com or, you know, pick a fantasy, uh, pick a draft website that has rankings. The team boards are going to be very unique and specific. So it might, you might see guys that you, we won't expect to come off the board maybe before other names. And it's really because they're catering to what they need on their depth chart. And I think that's what makes it such a fascinating class. You know, we talked about 20 guys tonight, probably give or take, and there's still so many others that we could have gotten in. So final question tonight, Ben, is there anybody we haven't talked about yet that either a maybe is in your top 10 or top 12 and we didn't get around to them tonight? Or if not in your top 10 or top 12, is there one or two names of guys that we didn't talk about that you would still pound the table for, you know, maybe somewhere on day three that would intrigue you? Because, I mean, there's a lot of guys we didn't even get to. J.J. Orsega-Whiteside, we didn't say too much about, you know, Keelan Doss at UC Davis, Jalen Hurd, Deontay Johnson and Cody Thompson at Toledo, Keyshawn Johnson at a Fresno, you know, Dylan Mitchell out of Oregon, Darius Slayton out of Auburn. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So I'm just interested to know, is there anybody that, A, maybe is in your top 10 or top 12 we didn't cover, or any of those names that I mentioned or other names that you would still pound the table for because maybe you're higher on than somebody else and would be intrigued with? Yeah, you know, you mentioned J.J. Arcega-Whiteside. I have some issues with his lack of separation, but obviously – He's a player that almost craves the contact and wants to put his butt on someone so he can box him out like a power forward and high point him, bring in the red zone. J.J. Arcega-Whiteside, I'm putting 10, 15 pounds on you and making you my move tight end. Uh, that's probably my day one project with that guy. But one player I've been pounding the table for that isn't going to wow you, his tape doesn't wow you, his tests don't wow you, but he's just a productive player. And I think he has a similar arc to a similar player that came out of the same school, and that's Keyshawn Johnson at a Fresno State who won't wow you with the size being 6'1", 204, running a 4'6", but this is a very, very productive possession receiver. And I've been comparing him to a almost like a Derek Mason-style player that never really wowed you in the NFL, but just a really solid receiver that can win on third down, win the tough, gritty catches on the inside, on the outside. Actually went to the same high school as Devontae Adams as well. Then went to Fresno State, ended up breaking all Devontae Adams' record. I saw him once in person at the Las Vegas Bowl against Arizona State. Ended up being his most quiet game as a uh, as a collegiate. So I was a little disappointed there. But uh, I just think there's another kind of interesting aspect with this draft and the landscape of college football to talk about. And that's the kind of trend of transfers. And when you get these guys moving around, it takes some extra vetting into figuring out the situations and why they transferred their coachability, their relationship with their teammates, how they were viewed in the transfer process, and how demanding they were about the transferring and their roles at the next school. Because most of these guys are extremely talented. They're four- and five-star players that had some hiccups at school, whether that's Jazz Ferguson, who went to LSU as a five-star, transferred to Northwestern State. He's 6'5", 220, and ran 4'4 at the Combine. There's something special there with a lot of these receivers like that, whether that's Preston Williams at Colorado State, who is a highly touted player at Tennessee, or Jalen Hurd going to Baylor from Tennessee, or even a Dale Harris, who is a four-star that went to Ole Miss, then to Juco, then to Miami, then to Alcorn. These guys are very, very talented, but like I like to say a lot on Twitter and to some of my friends, it's not always about ability in the NFL. There's a lot of other factors that matter with the success and failure of these prospects. And 
these guys have ability, but that's really not the question. A lot of it's the accountability, the responsibility, being a young 20-something with, you know, roles and a job to do. And some of these guys kind of lose their way and just doing simple things like showing up to practice, showing up to meetings, being a leader, setting your alarm. And just some guys kind of fall by the wayside. And it's not always about ability. And I think some of these transfers take just a little bit extra vetting and digging into to figure out what the problems were. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fascinating conversation because, you know, it really is something that's got to be looked at closely because we understand all the time that, and Matt and I talk about this, draft capital really does mean a lot at the NFL level. I think more than people realize. And it's not that you can't make it if you're not a, you know, top 100 pick or, you know, first four or five rounds. But your leeway, your opportunity is really much higher than someone who's a late round pick or a UDFA pick. It's just the way it is. Team C, and even if you don't make it, if you're an early round pick and you don't make it in your first landing spot, you almost always get multiple opportunities. I mean, Matt and I are Giants fans, and we, we watched Eric Flowers be a turnstile for years for the New York Giants offensive line. And if he was a sixth or seventh round pick, the Giants would have cut him probably after the first or second season. Instead, he was on the team for four years, starting most of that time, and now he was getting another opportunity in the league. But if he was a sixth or a seventh round pick, if he was one of these guys that was transferring around and went undrafted, he wouldn't have got that leeway. So some of these guys that you brought up, Preston Williams, Ferguson, they moved around. They, you know, whether it's accountability, coachability, learning the playbook, what attitude, whatever it might be, they have hurt their opportunity because they're not going to probably get drafted anywhere nearly as high as their talent should have warranted probably when they stepped foot, you know, on their collegiate, you know, as freshmen. And because of that, that's then going to hinder and hurt their opportunity to probably make it at the NFL level. And now they're going to be extreme long shots to do that. So it does really need that extra vetting to learn about these guys, find out if there's more than maybe, you know, is out there for public consumption. And I'm sure there's a lot more than, you know, if you dig into the story, but I do think it, it, it really does matter a lot. And when you have 60 guys who, you know, 57 guys are at the combine in terms of the wide receivers, I mean, it's how many are going to get drafted? 35, 40 wide receivers. So think about how many guys aren't going to get drafted. So if you have any of those issues that you were talking about, whether it's just, you know, not being accountable, you know, you know, coaches having issues with you, you having issues with teammates, that's going to kind of start to, you know, shorten the list for NFL teams. And then in, you know, obviously then lead to less of an opportunity and less leeway to make mistakes at the NFL level. So I think it's a fascinating conversation and and topic. Matt, any thoughts on that, the transfer discussion that Ben brought up and I just chimed in on? So, yeah, I mean, I think that like for the most part, I think the transfer discussion is going to be really a big part of the discussions moving forward for more than even just receivers. I mean, it'll it'll extend to many, many positions, including quarterbacks. We're seeing it all the time now. I mean, how do we vet that discussion? I mean, we talk about, you know, vetting, you know, uh, positions like wide receivers. I mean, we can argue that, you know, quarterbacks, I mean, that's, you know, going to probably be one of the biggest spotlights moving forward. I mean, Kyler Murray, a player that we're talking about right now uh, was a transfer. 
and he's going to be potentially going number one overall. And it's going to be a fascinating, fascinating discussion because, um, you know, you look at this, this, the, the state of college football and the latitude and the versatility being afforded players to find playing time is being kind of released a little bit and they can go and do that. And, and I, and I wish them all the best, but I think to your point, Ben, and to your point, Paul, I, I don't think that the, that a rash of transfers is going to go unchecked. I think it's going to have to be vetted. I think in many cases it's going to cost them draft capital unless you're talking about those premium premium positions like quarterback where it seems like for the most part we understand why you're transferring. We we get that you're trying to get playing time. So I I don't think this is the first nor do I think it's the last of these discussions. I think it's going to be a very very common thing across positions as we move forward. Yeah, absolutely. Great conversation. That conversation alone could be an entire episode here. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll curtail it uh, there for tonight. Ben, thank you so much for uh, joining us this evening. It was an absolute blast to pick your brain, hear your thoughts, takes, comps for so many of these wide receivers. Uh, so thank you again for being on the show. Just let our uh, listeners and audience know where they can find you, where they can find your work. If you're working on anything in particular that you kind of want to pub, uh, go for it. Yeah, uh, pleasure hopping on with you guys and talking ball here. We can talk all night, uh, by all means. But, yeah, just check out the NFL Draft and NFL Network. I'm working on a lot of the tapes and the research with Daniel Jeremiah for our draft coverage on the NFL Network. So all the uh, kind of analytical points he wants to hit on the prospects, I'm digging through the tapes and trying to find all the talking points he wants to hit and all the kind of cool footage and older footage of some guys to get perspective on them during the broadcast. So. Uh, it's kind of uh, the gift that keeps on giving this point in the draft process as the names and the prospect list keeps growing and growing. But this is why we love what we do, right? Absolutely. Uh, Matt, any uh, final parting shots here? Yeah, you know, I, I just, Ben, honestly, when it comes to the quality of threads that I see out there on Twitter, I think during this time you get a, you get a lot of opinion but I also think you don't get the same substance that you get from a lot of different people out there. And and I really appreciate the work that you put into really crafting an, a really awesome thread out there on, on social media, because I think not only do you bring that same level of insight and passion to each of your evaluations, I also think that you strive to kind of give as much context as you can to really frame the player in the best light or to present the most clarity that you can on every player that you're talking about and it just it doesn't go unseen it, it really is appreciated and, and I respect that out of it well I do appreciate that and you know I'm really not a fan of college football or any of these guys I hope they all end up being hall of famers and all pros they're sal- failure successes I don't really have a uh, you know a, a leg in the race I don't really care if they end up being hall of famers I want them all to be as successful as possible and I think when you get to fans and guys with allegiances and they start pounding the table for their the guys of their teams things just get a little muddy and murky and I just try to make sure I give a very uh unbiased fair approach to these guys that isn't emotional and kind of giving the full picture of every prospect because each prospect has pros and cons to them and you have to give the full picture yeah absolutely and I know that's something Matt and I hold on I have to interrupt you so you're saying that Hunter Renfro can go to the Hall of Fame that's what I said you heard it here first there you go See you, Hunter. There you go. Yeah, I know Matt and I constantly always discuss that as well, that, like, you know, we have our takes on guys, 
But we hope that the takes on when we look at a player and we have questions about his transitioning to the next level, we always we always preface our conversation and say we hope we're wrong. You know, we hope we're wrong. We hope these you know people you know exceed expectations and prove you know my take or Matt's take wrong if we necessarily aren't a fan of what their game is or have questions about how they may transition. And I think that's something, you know, that that we constantly harp on because I do think, you know, listen, Twitter is a great place for so many things, but at times it could also be a place, you know, surrounded with some negativity. And I do think sometimes people want their takes to be right more than the players succeeding. And I know Matt and I, you know, really harp on the fact that, you know, we're just trying to lay out what we think of these players, where where their strengths are, where their areas that we think, you know, they have development or potential concerns in terms of transitioning to the next level but we hope that we we improve we hope they improve upon that you know correct those issues and go on to have really successful careers and prove our analysis to be 100 percent inaccurate at times and and I, I think that's important and i don't know if that's always uh necessarily everybody's takes out there so it's great to hear that uh from you as well so with that on behalf of ben on behalf of Matt and our sound and tech engineer, David Nakano, thank you for joining us. And we look forward next time taking you from Saturday to Sunday.